and welcome to Lave Radio. I'm your host for this edition, Chris Jarvis, and this week we have a very special podcast bringing to you a number of recordings made at the recent Fantasticon 2014 science fiction convention. For those of you that don't know, this was an event organised by Fantastic Books Publishing to serve as a launch event for their Fantastic Elite Fiction, uh, but also featured many more things that you would expect to find at a science fiction convention. Uh, there were a number of cosplayers, there were gaming stands, there were stars there from Doctor Who that were doing signings, there was also a LAN room, Dave Hughes was running his Elite Encounters role-playing game. Throughout the day we made a number of recordings which we have the opportunity to share with you now and towards the end of the podcast Alan Stroud and myself managed to sit down in the bar to have a bit of a chat about some of our experiences from the day and also catch up on some of the other things that we'd been doing. So uh, enjoy the podcast. As you know Michael's been the backbone of our operation in writing these fiction pieces and the poor man has been in tatters regularly drawn over the coals for extra information over the last year, proofreading, approvals, this, that and the other. And you know what? He's actually writing a book too. But um, he's been so busy helping us with ours that he hasn't had a chance. So I think what I want to do is turn the tables on you a little bit here, Michael. And I want to ask you about your book. First of all, where are you at with it? And can you give us some kind of a teasy synopsis about what it's going to be about? Okay, so I need to be a little bit careful here because it hasn't been approved. Um, I'm about two-thirds of the way through the first draft, so I'm hoping by the end of the month I'll be handing it over to David to get it reviewed. And fingers crossed he likes it. We shall see. Um, so what I wanted to do with the book is actually come at it so while you're reading it, you can feel that the characters are actually something that you'd interact with during the game as well. I think one of the uh, great things about the earlier versions of the game was the fiction that came with it and how it sort of widened the universe. And I think the authors have already done uh, a good job of that. So I wanted to take a more player-centric view of the story. Um, so I've done a very sort of Machiavellian uh, mercenary adventure. Brilliant. Now, um, you said you've got to hand it over to David Braben for approval. And you kind of made a little face. So do you kind of know how we felt now? <laughs> Uh, well, you had it easy. You had me. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is very true. Um, okay, so now you guys are all ridiculously busy getting the game together. But one of the enduring questions, I'm not going to like push you too hard on this, but one of the enduring questions, and I, can I just, when I ask this question, I want a write-on from Commander from everybody who agrees. The question I get asked a lot is, what about sequels? <laughs> I've been ambushed. <laughs> totally. Um, so at the moment, as you say, we're focusing on the game, and that's really our focus for the rest of this year. But we'll certainly be looking into extending licenses or adding new licenses and what processes that will involve probably early next year. So. Now, I personally, I'm kind of a bit frustrated with, with my lifestyle because at the moment we're so busy with book writing. and uh, We're gamers here, right? And as gamers, we don't like to lose, ever which means you've got to put a lot of time into a game. And personally, I haven't had as much time as I would like to get good at Elite Dangerous. Now, you are writing a book involved with the production. Do you ever get a chance to play? And if you do, what's been your favourite kind of, you know, mission or element of it so far? Uh, yeah, I do get a chance to play. Usually when we've released the new build, uh, I'll play on the public servers and leave myself in the open group. So if anyone wants to have a go, they can bring it. 
Um, at the moment, I'm uh, flying a Type 6, just cruising between different systems, doing a bit of trading. No tools required. And uh, yeah, just I think trading is the, the fun thing for me at the moment. As we expand the galaxy, we'll be getting more into the exploration and discovering all the cool things that are there. What about the fish? There are no fish. There are no fish. I think there's a few people here who wouldn't agree <laughs> with that. <laughs> okay, so what's next in terms of the game? I mean, what's your next big, big hurdle? Um, what can we expect to see? So obviously the big focus now is to try and get the uh, initial release done before the end of the year. We've got another phase of beta to go through, uh, and then there'll be gamma as well. Uh, so there's some big features uh, coming. Uh, I think I'll use the trademark soon on that one, as we haven't got a definite date yet. Uh, but keep an eye on the newsletters and uh, you'll be discovering more things quite soon. <laughs> now, this, obviously there's a big focus on um, the elite fiction here today, but we've seen a lot of other fiction. There's some great fiction over there um, from other authors who were with the Fantastic Collective. Um, so you should go and have a chat with them if you haven't already about their books. And we've seen some brilliant cosplayers who are all from different elements of, of science fiction. So my next question to you and my last question to you, I hope, because... As a filler, I'm running out of questions. Um, my last question to you is, if you could be any science fiction character, who would you be and why? Uh, I think I'd be one of the culture minds. You'd be? One of the culture minds. Oh, okay, why yeah. is that? Because uh, they're awesome. Can you elaborate? Uh, well, okay, so if you're not familiar with Ian M. Banks, uh, he has his culture series. And one of the main characters in there are these sort of AI constructs that run these massive megaships. And they're basically super intelligent beings that get in kind, into all kinds of trouble. And they just seem like a, a fun way to live, to be a ship. To, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and talking about the cosplayers, because they're all over there chatting amongst themselves, so I'm, I'm hoping to grab their attention with this question. Um, personally, I, if I was dressed as one of the cosplayers, I would have wanted to be Iron Man. Mostly because he got invited to wax somebody in Tesco's. I don't know if you know that. Somebody, somebody was getting waxed for charity and they all piled in there and they're like, come, come and wax somebody for charity. So, and someone gave him a tenner just for being Iron Man, so I don't know what that's about. I do that for free, let alone for charity. <laughs> so which of these character costumes would you have worn today if you could have worn anything? You know, obviously the uh, Wookiee costume would have been your number one choice, but you're dressed as that anyway. <laughs> which, which character would you have been of the cosplayers today? Uh, I think it would be the suit of armour. Right. He needs and more beard and bigger axe, but yeah, works for me. I went out to get some cash earlier on, and I don't know if you noticed me, but I walked out the back entrance of the, um, of the uh, hotel here into the station and sitting on the central circle stall all on his own. Like that. You look like you'd lost your horse. <laughs> <laughs> But brilliant. Thank you so much to everybody. And um, I hope that that's enough filler for you. I think we all need to give Michael, because we totally ambushed him with this. And um, you heard it here first. Sequels. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. <laughs> um, so thank you very much, Michael Brooks. Thank you. Uh, I would like to start by introducing the fantastic elite fiction authors. They're not all here. Some of them are slumming it in New Zealand and that sort of thing, you know. So... Uh, We've got these guys, and they're all wonderful. Uh, first, uh, you've already met Mr. Christopher Jarvis. The wonderful Kate Russell. Commander Darren Gray. 
the liter literary machine that is Alan Stroud. The wonderful Ramon Moret. The gorgeous Chris Booker. And of course, the Imperial Senator Drew. Just bow your heads gently. <laughs> okay, well, uh, this is the focus of the whole con, essentially. Um, these guys are here to talk about their books. Um, it's been a really long battle. It's been a really long journey. And it's been a wonderful one for me as head of the publishing company as well, who's behind all these guys. So, uh, first things first, I want to um, just give you a little rundown of what these guys have been doing and battling away with us for. Um, they all battled away on Kickstarter and got themselves an official license with Frontier Developments to give them the right to write an elite dangerous novel based in the elite dangerous universe. Now that in itself sounds like, okay, there's a guidebook arriving and you write your novel, make sure you tick all the boxes and that's fine. But it's much more complicated than that. Alan Stroud, for example, was instrumental in creating lots of the elite dangerous guidebooks, etc. that all of these authors and all the other authors. How many are there in total, Alan? How many authors? Yes. There's 19 of our guys, so... Okay, so you've got another four from Galantz. Mm -hmm. You've got TJ, so that's, that's five. Then you've got Dave Hughes' role-playing game, so that's six mm -hmm. additional projects. So that's 25. You've then got another two or three projects that we're kind of not sure whether they're going to get mm -hmm. through, but essentially that gives you nearly 30 pieces of fiction associated with the computer game, which is unprecedented in any computer game franchise in the world ever. <laughs> That's got to be worth a small round of applause, surely. Okay, now I have a few pre-prepared questions that we picked up from the forums earlier, so I'll just, uh, I'll just run them out to each of the authors, and then we will open it up to the audience again, if I may, much like the Doctor Who Q&A. Is that okay with everyone? The end about right. Uh, Alan, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Okay, you look really happy about that. Everybody knows that whenever I do any of these kind of Q&As or anything else, I tend to start grumpy and warm up, so, you know, <laughs> uh -huh, I'll right, start okay, grumpy well, uh, and warm up. I'm sure it'll warm up eventually. It's quite a long question, to be fair, so. Alan, you've been incredibly busy throughout this whole process, uh, and in the last few weeks, remarkably so. Um, you're writing for Julian Gollop's much-anticipated game Chaos Reborn, and we're also instrumental in getting the detailed Elite Dangerous universe into the amazing shape it is today. Where do your seemingly boundless reserves of energy come from? Weetabix. <laughs> Good answer. Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll give you that. We'll give you that. That's <laughs> um, I think, I mean, just to, to reiterate your question and answer a slightly different one that kind of relates to it, because I guess I can um, in those terms. The, the amount of work and the, the, the amount of stuff that, uh, that I've done for Elite and that I've done for, for other writing that I'm involved in usually comes out of the fact that I'm passionate about whatever it is that I'm choosing to write for. And with the fact that Elite meant so much to me as a child um, and you know, was the thing that fired my imagination, was the thing that you know, some of you heard my rubbish day from school quote, um, and also was the thing that, you know, that, that kept me awake at night after I'd finished playing, imagining elements of the game world, imagining the universe, and, and just thinking about you know, what those adventures were like. Um, when you've spent that amount of time, and, and this kind of relates to, I don't know if anyone's read Alan Garner at all, who's a, a, an author from the 1950s who um, wrote The Weird Stone of Brissegamon. Um, Alan Garner used to have out-of-body experiences. I'm not saying I, I had out-of-body experiences. But he used to, basically, as a child, he was, he was actually he was very ill. 
And um, so he spent a lot of time bedridden. And he used to look up at the ceiling and he used to, to sort of imagine and dream. And I think when you spent a lot of time as a child with a particular thing that you dream about and that you are so, so wrapped up in, and then you, you come around as, as sort of a 35-year-old adult and somebody says to you, yeah, we'd like your help. Yeah, why don't, why don't you write some stuff on that? That kind of gives you the energy. You don't need anything else. Um, I think some people may be familiar with the fact that I did quite literally, in writing the guide material for these, these, these pieces of fiction, I did quite literally sit in the same seat on my couch for the same time pretty much every day from about 5.30 in the morning, and then I went and did work, and then came home in the evening and stayed up till gone midnight writing the guide material, to such an extent that the springs in my chair gave way and for the last three weeks I was sat in a hole <laughs> on my laptop doing the, the material. But that's, that's it, you know, and for me that, that is the gig, you know, elite. I, I kind of like to feel, and perhaps it's a little bit uh, presumptuous, but I like to feel that the quality of what we have seen as a game, the quality of what we've seen in terms of the fiction release, is partially down to the fact that I put some effort in. And that's a reward. You know, that's what it means. Oh, that's excellent. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Cheers for that. That's an interesting insight. And also, he did um, make me put in his contract a brand new sofa as well. So, <laughs> thanks. Um, right, I'm going to move on to Kate, if I may. Uh, Kate, you are a well-known TV personality, off of the telly, no less. Um, <laughs> You've got a massive following in the tech world, but what made you make the leap into writing fiction, and why choose the world of elite to do it in? Well, you know, actually, my career on television and in the media doing technology came after my love of science fiction and elite. Because, and, and a lot of you have probably heard this story already, but as, a, as an awkward and um, obstinate 15-year-old going to an all-girls school, um, a girls' grammar school where uh, they were teaching me um, needlework and home economics, um, how to roll a Swiss roll and embroider my name on an apron in case I ever forgot who the apron belonged to, presumably. Um, and I really rejected education and, and didn't really get the point of it. I didn't know why they were teaching me these things, why I had to remember by rote these boring dates and names and statistics. Um, and my brother was learning about computers and technology and he was doing we got, we got a bbc micro at home because he got really into it and we got the game elite and suddenly i had something that interested me and a reason to want to learn things so whereas i had rejected maths i'd rejected you know any kind of study when i was at school through the game i wanted to learn about economics i wanted to learn about navigation i wanted to learn what the boundaries of, of physics were within this universe and and because it is a game that was very faithfully based on a science fiction kind of mentality and that we debated this a little on sci-fi hour last night um you know what is science fiction well for me science fiction is very much if it's possible potentially or plausible within the laws that we already know about you know sort of physics and science then it becomes science fiction and, and, and if you go into make-believe and and stuff you know magic and fairies then it, it becomes fantasy so it was elite that got me into technology in the first place and actually it's probably elite that kept me out of juvenile correction facilities to a certain extent um, and I'd always loved to read the fiction that went with it and, and that got me into it and I'd loved writing anyway so I'd always wanted to be a writer and going into 
computers, technology, writing, reporting, it's always, it's all, all really just been a, a sort of a, a rather long journey to the point that I am now where I've literally, you know, and thanks to you guys, and I've met a lot of you here who've really faithfully supported us to the Kickstarter. You know, this is number one on my bucket list. Publish a novel. And science fiction and fantasy are my genres that I love to read. You know, Douglas Adams was an absolute god to me as I was growing up. Terry Pratchett, I've chatted with a couple of you already about you know, my influences. And so to be able to call myself a science fiction author based on a game that was the thing that got me into my passion in life anyway is just the ultimate, I mean, you, you can't even dream, you couldn't make it up. You know, if somebody said to me, you know, what would be your dream? I wouldn't even have thought of this. This goes beyond what my dreams were. So, so yeah, it's all, it's all just been a journey to here, really. Well, that's wonderful. Dream come true stuff, really. Indeed. Awesome. Okay. Uh, right, I'd like to move on to Drew now, if I may. Um, Drew, you are known on the forums as the Senator. And for any of you guys who saw our Kickstarter campaign, Drew and his wonderful children and his long-suffering wife did all sorts of comedy things, including having him getting skewered to death and landing on his keyboard at the end. So, uh, fair play to Drew for all the hard work he's done. All you guys push really hard for the, for the Kickstarter. Um, but what I want to ask Drew is, uh, with so many books already written within the Elite Universe, um, uh, in the, the Oolite Saga, for example, and, and the kind of more unofficial stuff, what may be, with such a huge following, which you have in the community already, why did you decide to make the move to official fiction as opposed to, I, I hesitate to call it fan fiction because it's, it's, it's awesome stuff, but it was never official until Elite Reclamation. Um, I can completely disclaim all responsibility for that because it was the fans who suggested it. Um, I must was, have felt wonderful. <laughs> it was nice. Actually. I, I'd written, as, as, as you say, the, the Elite saga, which was um, initially just for fun, um, and that was written back in 2006 in a time when there was nothing really official uh, about Elite itself um, in, in the public domain. Uh, Frontier had been very quiet about it. Um, and a few of us were on various different forums um, you know, talking about Elite and enjoying it and, and playing fan remakes of the game. And it seemed that the game deserved a, uh, a book to go with it in that intermediate time. People liked it. I wrote a few sequels. People liked them. And then I'd actually given up at that point. I'd written four of them. It was supposed to be a trilogy, but rather like Douglas Adams, he can't count either, um, and uh, ended up with four of these books. And then I said to myself, right, I've done enough Elite. I've put the whole Elite thing to bed. I was a fan. I played it back in 1984 when it first came out. I followed it all the way through. I've written four little fan fiction books about it. That's enough. I'm not going back to the world of Elite because it's too restrictive. Um, you know, the universe is very segmented. There's, a, there's a rules. I can't invent my own story the way I want to do it because Elite is you know, a, a hermetically sealed universe, if you like, and um, you know, I felt my creative freedom in writing the sort of stories that I wanted to write would be limited. So I started working on my own science fiction novel, which is completely separate. And about three months after that, suddenly I was on the train, looking at the BBC website on my phone, and I saw the Elite logo. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I haven't seen that for a few years, clicked on it, found out about the Kickstarter, um, and then obviously that was very quickly across all the internet forums, oh, Elite's back, and there's this Kickstarter going on, and it, it's actually going to happen, because the myth around Elite 4, yeah, it, it, was, the, it was the vaporware, um, if I could just use that term, those of you who know about it, um, the thing that will never happen, but it has a name. Um, you know, the, the last game, uh, Elite 3, which is effectively Frontier First Encounters, came out in 94. Five, I think so you know and it's now 2012 at this point 
And, and it had gone into myth, it had gone to legend. It was one of those things that wouldn't it be great if, but it probably will never happen. And I'm on, I'm on record on the Frontier Forum somewhere, somebody will find it, that says, Drew says this, um, it'll never happen. We're all getting too old because it had been such a long length of time. And so I, you know, I'd, I'd basically kind of given up on the whole idea. And I know a, a lot of other people were getting very long in the tooth waiting for this game. And then suddenly there it was, and the fans, uh, and a few of the fans, particularly from the, the stuff I'd done on the Oli, uh, sent me a few um, private messages and texts and things basically saying, you know, wouldn't it be great, you know, would you, would you consider writing an official book? And I said, well, I would, but, you know, how do you go about doing that sort of thing? So I, I penned a quick email to the Kickstarter, uh, to David Braben and, and Frontier, through the Kickstarter, saying, is there a chance for the fanfic authors like myself, because there are a few others uh, who, who've written bits and pieces, to um, audition or whatever to write a book in the elite universe? And uh, there was no answer. So I kind of thought, oh, well, I gave it a shot. You know, nothing ventured, nothing gained, all that kind of thing. Um, and then a few days later, suddenly on the... Elite Dangerous Kickstarter appeared the Writer's Pack, which was um, yeah, a chance, a single license, one book. Um, if you buy this, you are entitled to write a book officially in the Elite Universe, sell it with the Elite, da Elite Dangerous brand, the Elite logo, you know, the, the flying griffin. Uh, absolutely official to be publicized by Frontier and so on and so forth. Um, so, great! And then I saw the cost, it was four and a half grand. I went, oh, game over, Commander. Um, and um, it was kind of like, I haven't got four and a half grand. Most of us didn't have four and a half, four and a half grand. You know, it's a lot of money. Um, and then, um, based on that, um, we were discussing this again on the Elite Forum, saying, okay, well, what, yeah, is there anything we can do about that? And, and uh, one chap um, basically said, we could start a Kickstarter to fund the Kickstarter. Everyone fell about laughing. And then somebody asked a few, a few days later, so why wouldn't that work then? And there was silence. Nobody could think of a downside, because there wasn't a downside. If we all pledged money in, if we didn't make it, nobody was out of pocket. If we did make it, we had it. So I thought about it, and thought, well, maybe it'll work. I had a look at Kickstarter itself. I read the Kickstarter rules. Is there anything in there that says, no, you can't do that? And there wasn't. I pitched the idea to Kickstarter themselves, and they went, yep, that's fine with us. I thought, okay, there's only one more hurdle here then. So I sent an email to Frontier on their Kickstarter saying that I intend to put a Kickstarter together to fund the pledge on your Kickstarter. Is that okay? And David Braben sent me an email back saying, yes, that's okay, good luck. And at that point, I pressed the submit button and the rest is history. Amazing. Admiral Braben himself. Huh? <laughs> that must have felt so good. And you made it, because here you are. There we are. Fantastic. And because of him, we all made it too. Indeed. Started Indeed. the ball rolling. Absolutely, yeah. And and initially, when the when the Kickstarter was the Kickstarter to fund the Kickstarter was started, um, and that's a hell of a mouthful. Um, uh, there was there was quite a lot of controversy, wasn't there? I mean, people, you know, who is this guy? You know, he's 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 trying to raise crowdfunding to to buy something from a crowdfunding campaign. What's that about? And to be honest, looking back over it, I didn't really think they understood the pledge that you were going for, because of course, you know, you, you're not you're not giving four and a half thousand pounds to the Elite Dangerous Kickstarter, and then they hand you a book and say stick your name on that. I mean, there's, an, you know, there's a massive journey to be begun once you make that four and a half grand. And I think once that was made clear, suddenly it was wonderful, just reading back historically, how the whole, um, uh, the whole kind, of, kind of audience who were watching slowly turned and came onto Drew's side, and it, it really started sort of building momentum. 
And of course, as that one started going, then another appeared, and another appeared, another appeared. And it was wonderful, because the majority of these guys on, on the stage right now have raised this money themselves because of their passion for the elite universe. And, and I think that's a wonderful thing. And, and the community is incredible. Um, you go to community events like LaveCon and uh, community events like Fantasticon, but of course I can't talk historically, this is the first one, but thank you all for coming. Uh, and I just think it's been an incredible journey so far. So I will now move on to the next author, if I may. And it's Mr. Christopher Jarvis, audio Jedi himself. Here he is. Now, Chris, as the, as the producer of the unofficial um, elite audio drama Escape Velocity and the producer of all five elite audio books and also the author of Children of Zeus, a story in the, in the anthology, how do you ensure that your connection to the other author's stories is as strong as your own? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think um, I think there's always an element. I think even if you, I mean, I found one of the things that I've learned doing sort of audio drama and audio books um, is even if you are the writer of something and then you record something with actors and then you edit something, there's kind of they're very different parts of the process and they're very different jobs. So there's a sense where, so to take Escape Velocity as an example, so I wrote all the scripts got my actors together, recorded the drama. Once you've done that, once you've kind of locked down principal recording, you know, that, that job is done and that job is set in stone. You can't change a word of it without having to kind of drag people out and re-record. So there's a sense when you get in the studio with your recorded stuff, your, your recorded scripts, that then that's the material you're working with to create something that's as best as you can possibly make it based on what you got on the day. So in terms of you know my approach to working with the other writers stuff actually you know once I've got the recordings in and I'm working on it it's kind of a level playing field children of Zeus once we had the audio script through and an actor in the studio the story was kind of out of my hands and it's actually I mean you know people sort of think I freak out a bit but one of the things I've, I've learned that's great about working with actors is you write something and then you put it in the hands of another person to speak it out loud and you actually gain stuff that you didn't write into it or you gain nuances through their performance that it's, it's not even just about performance ability in some instances it's about having a second brain looking at that material and they're kind of working it through their filters so you actually it, it becomes when you when you when you take writing it's something that a lot of writers don't get to experience unfortunately but it's once you take your writing and put your words into other people's mouths it becomes a kind of beast all of its own so i mean i think if anything I've kind of been guilty in the past of maybe not giving my own stuff the same attention that I give other people's because, of course, I'm taking a fresh pair of eyes to other people's work. Um, so I approach it perhaps in a slightly different way than, than my own things where I sort of think, oh, well, I know this, I wrote it. And there's a tendency maybe sometimes to tune out a little bit. So I have to sort of, I have to make myself look at my stuff with fresh eyes in, in a sense. Um, so I hope that's answered your question. Yeah, it certainly has. Thank you very much. Uh, right, yeah, well, I mean, Chris's audio studio is, it's, it's, a, real, it's a real lovely sort of jeweled cavern. Um, it's nice. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get some pictures up. Um, at some, yeah, jeweled cavern right. maybe it's makes like it. two toilets. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, Commander Stroud, I think you'll find that's three toilets. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I didn't build three booths to have them called two, thank you very much. Now, without further ado, let's move on to the next author. Um, I would like to talk to Commander Darren Gray. Here he is. Now, Darren... You are lead writer for the computer game Roguelike, Jupiter Hell. I've written close to a novel, novel's worth of lore for fantasy RPG tales of Ma Marge Ayal. Marge Ayal. Marge Ayal. Uh -huh. 
Uh, what attracts you to writing within these universes? And do you think the restraints of writing within a predetermined universe affect your creative ideas or reinforce them? Um, I definitely think those sort of restrictions help. Uh, I think when, when you're a writer and you have certain, you're put in a box with, with what you have to write about, mm -hmm. that makes you think up ideas that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. If you're given a blank slate and said, write anything, quite frequently you'll just go, uh, mm -hmm. it's quite difficult. Whereas if you said, I need this, 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 and this, and it has to be within this, suddenly like, okay, well, let's, let's do this and this and this. And you can find out lots of ways to bounce off the sides of the box and find new ideas. So sort of restriction breeds innovation in that sense, I think. Can I just mention to those of you that perhaps don't necessarily know Darren's work here, um, is it Majayal? Is there? Yes, okay. So there's quite a few people that have written on that. But um, one of the fans who, um, who played it and we discovered about three, four months ago, who Darren didn't know who she was, is Felicia Day. And Felicia Day tweeted that how much she enjoyed Tales of Majayal, and Darren was like, who's this? Uh, <laughs> and anybody that does know who Felicia Day is and knows anything about the Guild and, uh, and everything that she does, she's huge in America. So um, Darren should be very proud. <laughs> okay, huge but tiny in a, in a huge, tiny way. Uh, I should explain that Tales of Magiel is a, like a fantasy uh, RPG style game. And it used to be, it used to have all, it used to be a Tolkien setting. Then the developer decided he wanted to commercialize it, uh, which meant <laughs> can't have this Tolkien stuff, um, otherwise he'll get sued to death. So he wanted to, to invent a new world. So I, I started writing pieces for him, invented an entire backstory, and then ended up writing hundreds, literally hundreds of short stories and poems that are contained within the game and that reinforce the whole backstory of the world and the campaign that the player sort of goes through. Um, and I, I love doing that. I love kind of uh, little bits of pieces that add flavor to a world. I think that's, that's a wonderful way to write. Um, and the elite thing, of course, is, is doing the same thing. I really like that. One of the things I love on the forums, we were talking about restrictions earlier. Uh, on the forums, there's a weekly Drabble contest. A Drabble is a 100-word story. It has to be exactly 100 words. Um, that's quite restrictive in itself. Uh, on the forums, it, the Drabble has to be elite-based, and it has to fit in with a certain theme of the week. Sometimes uh, it has to fit several themes at once. And it, this is the ultimate in restriction. 100-word story has to be set in the elite universe, has to meet these themes of, of murder. Or I think the, the theme this week was death and beef. Uh, so, death, got a question? Death and beef, and preferably death psychopath. Yes, <laughs> which, <laughs> which uh, I, I hinted at in my, my travel. But yes, it, I love that sort of thing. So that sort of restriction is, is wonderful for me. And I would say to any creative writer, uh, anyone who's looking to, ex to hone their craft, Put as many restrictions on yourself as you can, because it will make you discover new things. You know, say I'm going to write a 500-word story. It must be first person. It must be in this sort of setting. You know, come up with some restrictions, and you'll be surprised with yourself for what new things you'll think. So generally, the restrictions you find tend to really focus your mind on the on the job at hand. Very much so. Cool. Thanks. Right now, we move on to the wonderful Ramon Moret. Now, lots of you have seen Ramon's work. Um, it's been playing in the independent theatre corner. Uh, quite a lot of it. Um, it's uh, the Dollmakers trailer, uh, Penny Grub. Uh, Ray's taken some very raw, very wobbly, very twitchy um, video footage and turned it into something absolutely amazing. I'm sure you'll agree. So you can sort of head over there and, and watch that before we, before we get on with the book readings in a second. But Ray, um, 
not only have you written the easy way out, my personal favourite in the anthology. Now, I've said this out there on the forums, I've said this out on social media. I, uh, obviously, they're all my authors, and I love them all dearly and equally. But you have to have a favourite, and the anthology is a collection of wonderful stories. Now, Ray's story is by no means the longest, <laughs> by no means the most complex, but it is my personal favourite, and I love it. It's called The Easy Way Out. Um, you've, you've also created all sorts of wonderful video content that really put... Uh, put, a, put a, a professional crisp edge on things like our Kickstarter, for example. Uh, we're talking about TV advertising and things like this. Um, my question for you is this. Where on earth do you find the time to create these amazing pieces of video work and still manage to write and edit your story? Uh -huh. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Weetabix, yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, my, my story is the shortest of the short stories as well, I think, helped. You know, I didn't have to uh, write loads for it. Um, I, I really enjoy what I do. I like doing all the video works that I work on. Um, I work in TV advertising, and it's, it's just fun. So I don't mind staying up till midnight every night to get, you know, all the work done. Um, so, yeah, it's a short answer, like a short story, but it's, it's fun, so it's easy to do. Okay. Fair play, that's wonderful. Thanks, Ray. Okay, and last but by no means least, we have the wonderful Chris Booker. Now, Chris wrote uh, Crossing the Line, uh, one of the stories in the anthology, but Chris um, is actually the organiser of the entire anthology, so without Mr Booker, there would be no anthology. So, Chris, as organiser, you were key to making this anthology come together. After such a long journey of editing and re-editing and up and down and bouncing up and down and proofing and all the rest of it, and then, of course, battling through all the audio stuff and always being the conduit for lots and lots of things to do with the anthology... How does it feel, personally, to you now, to see piles of your books on the table, people swooning over them, and also to know that Chris Jarvis is battling away in post-production, getting the audio versions ready? I'd prefer not to see piles of books on the table. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you can do something about that over the next couple of hours, that'd be great. Um, awesome. But uh, a little bit unfair to say it's all down to me, because it's all down to the people on Kickstarter that raised the money, because of course. they don't know who I am or who any of these guys are, and they gave their money and they trusted us to do this thing. So, uh, Well, how about a round of applause well for the to, audience? Well done to you and everybody else. Well, thank you very much indeed, guys. That was, uh, that was all very interesting. And now, if it's okay with you lot, I would like to open up to the audience after Alan Stroud has said what he was about to say. Uh, I was going to say that, um, that actually, I mean, I, I, had, I had the privilege of looking through all of the audio, um, not all the audio, all of the, uh, the written uh, uh, work done by, by everybody. And certainly through the process of the anthology, as they were quite short in their answers, I thought I'd, I'd reiterate this slightly. Um, Raymond sat on a panel with us in LaveCon 2013 and we had a bit of a Q&A about the writing and everything else and I'd seen some of the early stuff that you put together. The draft and eventual version that's in that <laughs> book is incredible. Yeah. I mean Dan says it's his favourite. By comparison your journey as a writer actually in a year and I'm not being patronising about that at all you know I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely in awe of the fact that your journey as a writer in a year was absolutely amazing. You know, to go from where you were to where you are now is absolutely brilliant in terms of the, the, the work that's there. Um, and Chris's, and Chris won't, won't, probably won't mention this, but Darren knows this very well, and I'm, I'm sure Raymond knows this very well. Chris started last, didn't you, Chris? Chris got every... You did all the work to get everybody else started, and then there was the kind of small whispering campaign going around of, 
are we actually going to see a draft from Chris? <laughs> Where's Chris's story? Um, but when he did start, and when he did start to, to write his piece, um, he approached it with such an open attitude to what he was doing. And I know this because I basically went, Chris, start your piece. I will help you. Um, he approached it with such an open attitude that he was absolutely prepared to take on board absolutely everything that everybody said and develop it uh, as things went forward. And crossing the line as it's come out um, is fantastic for somebody who had never written. And it's not to say, I mean, we can kind of talk about the fact that, you know, some people have never written stuff or not written stuff. Chris had generally never written anything, uh, really, in terms of, uh, well, I guess maybe like as a five-year-old yeah or, or you know something about that yeah you know he had he had you know he really came at this with absolutely no experience to what he was trying to do um but came at it at the right attitude and if there are any uh, aspiring writers here you know and if you are worried about you know the fact that you don't know what you're doing at this stage being open to change is the best piece of advice I could ever give anybody as an aspiring writer. When someone comes in and says, no, that's bad, this is why, being utterly open to change is really, really good for that development process. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I think also um, you, you, you can see how Alan's praising Chris away and Chris has taken the praise because he deserves it completely. But that epitomizes what this group of people and of the 19 authors who can't be here are all about. Every single one of them has been in contact with every single other one of them, helping out, encouraging, we're nearly there, keep going, don't be down, just keep pushing, just keep pushing. Alan went through almost a million words for a continuity edit, which is one of the, one of the frustrating things, because we've seen the stories, we've seen the drafts, we've read through start to finish, and then suddenly, there you go, Alan, here's a million words. Make sure that all fits with that huge, great yellow page-like tome that we got from Frontier that you helped write half of. And to be honest, he... He's been an absolute machine for these guys. And, but all of them, everyone here on this stage and everyone who's not on this stage has just pushed and helped and supported and it's, it's such, so wonderful. Can I please ask you to give a huge round of applause to the FEF authors. <laughs> right, that's enough of that. Excuse me, I've got something in my eye. Um, <laughs> Wait, I'd like to open the floor to some questions for these guys, please. Uh, Commander Morris. So take the microphone, take the oh, oh, sorry, sorry, I'll take the microphone. We are recording. Uh, edit that. For posterity. <laughs> so first of all, since it's me, the, the obligatory joke. Um, so if it's Chris Booker's book and Raymond wrote the best one in it, does that mean he won the Booker Prize? Thank you. Right, but the, well, the question is, is actually to Michael, who's not here anymore, so I'll ask it to Alan instead. Which is, are we going to see that stuff, all that background stuff that the authors eventually saw? Uh, okay, yeah, this is a complicated answer. All right, so I will, I will explain the process of, of what has happened. Um, the guidebooks that were produced uh, for the authors to write their, uh, the fiction, um, they are designed in such a way as to inspire people to write. Okay, so that's how I work, and that's how, you know, I wrote six, I think, um, then Michael wrote two or three, uh, TJ wrote one, Dave Hughes wrote one. Now, if they were to come out, and the majority piece that I think people would want to see is the written history document. I think that's actually what people want to see. That written history document is taken from the Frontier Gazetteer and is basically then a case of me sitting down on a couch 
and expanding everything that is taken from the Frontier Gazetteer. So it goes in a sequence of events that have occurred over the last, uh, what is it, 1,300 years. Maths, Drew, thanks, 13, yeah, good, uh, 1,300 years. So um, that, we discussed this quite early on um, in the writing process, um, and I said to Michael at the time, I think what would be a good idea is if you looked at when the lead up is, you know, sort of on to, to the release of the game, if you looked at releasing sections of this documentation so that it came out on a, on a forum or, or came out on the website uh, and gradually we did it week by week, you know, and we did sort of 100 years and 100 years and 100 years. And then somebody pointed out to me about four or five weeks ago how Star Citizen had managed to do their history documents by doing something fairly similar. So I was kind of a little bit, you know, but, you know. So the ball is still in Frontier's court in that regard. And I ought to stress this, and I hate to, 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 to tease you with it, but I will stress this. That history is not just written in a sequence of 1,700 years. It is written in a sequence of 1,700 years from the Empire's perspective. And then, because I'm a masochist, I went away and rewrote it from the Federation's perspective. And then, because I'm even more of a masochist, I went away and wrote it from the Alliance's perspective, and so on. So it actually, what it does is it, you know, it has bias written into each of the different accounts. Um, what Frontier do with it is up to them. Okay, so as you said, it, the question is best for Michael in terms of, of what's there. But without much work, then actually the history document could quite easily go onto the Frontier website or go into a library repository, which would be in-game. And ultimately, what we all want, and I think, you know, I, I, I certainly feel this, and I'm sure you guys probably do as well, is that we want people to play the game. So we want people to have a reason to be in the game. And if such case that that library documentation was in the game somewhere, I'd be very happy about that. And, you know, you could go visit somewhere and find out about stuff. So, it, as I say, I mean, that's a long way around of coming back to the original answer, which is it's Frontier's decision. Fair enough. I would, I would maybe add to that that the RPG is probably one of the best sources for yeah. getting a lot of that information because it, it's presented in that more factual way. Our stories are obviously uh, written in a dramatized way. A lot of the Dave Hughes RPG stuff it's got history and stuff in there. There's a lot of good information there. Um, and also, if we do get any sequel plots, and I know we had this discussion the other week, if we do get any sequel plots, we obviously we know certain things that have occurred which aren't, you're not privy to at this stage, or they're hidden. There's actually there's one or two that were hidden in a couple of the games and are hidden in the current game, Zalada, um, that people haven't realized, which is really, really interesting do look up the system Zalada in the old games. Um, there is something very interesting about it, which nobody's pointed out to me that they've noticed. Um, so yeah, so we're privy to a couple of these little things. And actually, Drew and I have already discussed one of them that, that was written in as a sequel plot. So of course, at this stage, we're kind of going, no, no, please don't give that away, because that will be my plot. Um, so yeah, so there is a little bit of a, uh, a sort of attention there, which uh, in terms of some of the elements. But you know, I'm sure it wouldn't matter too much, would it? Would it matter too much? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and spill the beans. You know, I don't think it would matter too much um, of that specific thing. I think that's quite tantalising enough. Thank you. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay, next question. Yes, Jex Collier. Uh, bear with me. Brenda. <laughs> 
Hi, it sounds like a few of you have written stuff outside the elite universe as well as your own elite novels. I'm just wondering, do you have a preference of which you like to do or does each have its own sort of magic about it? Because building a world from scratch, I know, is quite a large job. You have the world already there or do you prefer the freedom of your own rules like Drew said on the end there? I'll do that first. Uh, I'm, I'm possibly a little bit different to the other authors in this regard. I, I had a book published um, prior to this uh, uh, elite book, which was not science fiction or fantasy at all. Um, it was a, a drama set in the here and now, um, and it was a, uh, you know, effectively a character piece between fundamentalist religion and extreme uh, bigoted science. And um, what I've always brought to my books is characterization. So my books are heavily character driven um, and so I spend a lot of time developing the characters. And Elite Reclamation was, was no different to that. Um, I spent a lot of time on the characters and to be completely brutally honest about my book, if you edited it without too much effort you could move it into Victorian London or the ancient Roman Empire or um, some other setting throughout history without that much difficulty. It's a fairly timeless political intrigue story. Um, I've written it in science fiction. Clearly there are spaceships and space battles and all that kind of good stuff but it, um, it, it would be a very portable story in that sense. So for me it was all about making memorable characters, believable characters and having people that readers could really kind of empathise with that were nuanced and complicated, that they weren't just classic goodies and baddies, they were all goodies from their own perspective trying to do their thing and they all, of course, bump up against each other and get in each other's way. And my previous book was very much like that and so is Leap Reclamation. So for me, the science fiction was almost a flavour rather than it was the, the essence of, of, of the book. So that, that's, that's my answer. It's a bit like asking a mother to choose her favourite child. It's kind of, you can't. I love everything I write. Not in a kind of big, you know, I love it because it's great, but I, you can't help but, I mean, you're a writer yourself. Your book launches this weekend, so if you haven't spoken to Jex, do go over and have a look. But you fall in love with your characters and you have a real relationship with them. Though, what made this journey particularly special, and I don't want to blow smoke up your asses, but it's you lot, because it's been a real collaborative experience, and I think all of us, to some extent, had Kickstarter pledge tiers that sold some interaction with us through the creation process, which kind of makes it sound a little bit kind of mercenary, but having that community there who were so committed that they were willing to actually put their hands in their pockets and put some cash down on the table to be part of the journey has made this. I think this experience is going to be really hard to beat, but I love all my children equally, and I would never choose one. Thanks, that's great. Okay, um, it's probably... Uh, I've probably got the, the, the sort of the most divergent experience of writing in terms of... Um, uh, well, I guess Drew's romance novel, Torn, Romance Tragedy, kind of, isn't it, a little bit? No, it's probably underselling it, isn't it? Yeah, my, my partner's read it. And, uh, anyway, um, to... I've got my own fantasy series, uh, which is the Wissamere series, uh, the Wissamere Tales. Um, I have the science fiction, obviously, that I've done for this. I also have uh, urban fantasy, which I've written as well, which is the, the Durrington Tales, um, which are set around local legends. 
um, and also I've, I've, I've some other yeah, self-world generated ideas and, and the stuff that I'm writing for Julian Gollop at the moment which is just taking me into places that I never thought I would write um, I think for me and I'm going to differ with Kate here slightly for me the, the most interesting thing is usually the project that I'm in actually and for me at the moment the Julian Gollop stuff I'm, I'm currently writing a fourth Wissamere book and I'm writing the Chaos Reborn book which is called The Death of Gods um, and the interesting thing about it The Death of Gods came out of a crowdsource fund as well so there are um, some guys who are the god backers in the Chaos Reborn book which means they will be the god characters in the game and so they're writing their own backstories and so I have to incorporate those backstories into the world mythology um, and with my own work, I designed the world many, many years ago, and it's gradually refined and refined, and um, I'm sure Stuart understands that completely. Um, yeah, we all have lots and lots of pages of stuff on hard drives that are never probably going to be used. Um, so, so, yeah, so that, that sort of, you know, my own self-defined world has this kind of baggage to it when I go back to it, which I have to sort of refine through and go, what's, what's a story that people want to read? Uh, with the Kelsey Reborn thing... Um, it's actually, it started to challenge me, and that's why it's, it's probably my favorite. With the Elite stuff, um, I was able, through the Crowdsource Fund, to, to sort of put together appendices, and actually the appendices became something of a challenge because they were very different writing modes. Uh, writing an 8,000-word appendices in the, um, the voice of a dictator who is um, slightly mad and very, very intelligent is actually quite a a nuanced thing to, to be able to do. Um, but the Chaos Reborn stuff has taken me to write scenes in Peru, scenes in Greenland, scenes in Japan, scenes in Avignon in the 14th century, and authentic but slightly twisted with a bit of magic. So, and, and you know, the history research of that is fascinating. So actually that at the moment will be the thing that's grabbed me, um, simply for the fact that it's such a challenge in terms of what's there. Uh, you mentioned world building, uh, which I love. Uh, so, you know, my favorite stuff is a lot of the world building stuff. I especially love um, the stuff I've done for different indie game developers of writing stuff that helps build their worlds. Because quite often they are complete blank slates with what they want. So you, you, can, you can fill in a lot yourself. And also with indie developers, you can actually work very closely with the design. So, you know, you can write a legend about a famous weapon or a staff or a magic object and get a quest included in the game to actually find that, and players will really enthuse over that. So not just enjoying your writing, but it's tying in with their gameplay, and that, that is golden. Uh, I'm really hoping there's more opportunities with the elite stuff for that. So definitely that world-building stuff, absolutely love it myself. That's great, thank you. So we've got any more questions, guys? Ah. As you worked on a collaborative project, you obviously read each other's work, at least I, I get that impression. So. When you were reading someone else's work, which chapter stood out that, damn, I wish I had thought of that? Good question. So many. I don't, think, oh. I don't think we can answer that because there's too many spoilers involved in that. I mean, seriously, too many spoilers. Um, because for me, I know exactly which book and which chapter, but if I tell you, then those of you that haven't read that person's book yet, are going to kill me. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think there's been... Uh, it's an interesting question, though, because writers as a whole, you know, we're kind of... 
a little bit there's a little bit of the huge ego got to be involved a little bit of the narcissist and I don't think I don't know if any of you would agree because to actually be involved enough with storytelling that you are willing to put it out there you have to be brave you have to be bold and I've worked in television and I've met a lot of people in the creative industries and generally speaking there's quite a lot of not jealousy but you know it's kind of oh I don't want that person to do better than me I don't want you know I want to be the best I want to be the best and that I have to say we've got a Facebook group between us authors Alan's glaring at me right now so I'm interested to see what he's going to follow up with um but and and I hope you're going to listen to this bit before you say that whatever you're going to say you know it's been it's been such a supportive kind of experience and there's none of this kind of like oh you're doing better than me and or, or you've written a better thing than me nobody's had any kind of hint of that attitude it's all been like you know cheering each other on supporting each other and also genuine you know genuine critique helpful critique from a trusted source is an absolute gift and you don't get it very often and that I felt really along the whole route there's been genuine helpful criticism and critique and support that hasn't felt like it's in any way born from some kind of you know envy or jealousy and that's in my experience and maybe it's a tv thing but in my experience that's a really rare quality normally you get a a room full of creatives together who are all working on a similar project and they're looking for ways that they can slip something nasty into each other's drink and send them off to the toilet for three days to uh, get ahead so there's been none of that. It's been one big happy family. So um, that sounds really mushy, doesn't it? But that's my answer. Although Chris Booker did start writing last. Are we sure there was nothing wrong with him at the start? Oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, I, I, just for the record, I wasn't giving you an evil. Um, <laughs> if I was, you know. Um, the, for me, Ode to Betty Cole... Um, there is a moment where it turns thank you for reminding me of the title Darren uh, there is a moment where the uh, the story turns and it uh, and we were just saying earlier <coughs> spoilers no 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 I will be very careful there's a moment where the story turns and it reminded me very much of the first time I read 2001 and there is a moment in 2001 where the story turns and uh, it gave me the same chill and actually you know we can kind of look at the um, the positives and the negatives of all sorts of stories and say, oh, this was great, this wasn't, this, you know, and so on and so forth. And and, and I, to echo Kate's point, maybe not the narcissistic bit, um, I would echo the point that um, I, you can probably tell I'm such an incredibly critical person. Um, so don't ever take me bowling, incidentally, um, because I compete with myself really badly. I don't compete with other people. I compete with myself. So if I don't do where I think I should do, I get very upset. Um, so, so yeah, so um, uh, we, can, we can kind of, as I say, talk about the, the positives and the flaws of different things. But that specific thing gave me a visceral emotional reaction. And because it did, I would say that was the, the piece that I was, um, I was most jealous of the writing of. So well done, Darren. I think for me, um, the, the the main thing is, because I quite like sort of plumbing the depths of the previous games to kind of look for nice little references to slip in. Um, and it's when another writer has re- remembered something as a reference to a previous game that I kind of missed and thought, ah, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Um, and for me, it's the reference to Diet Stay Cat, 
in one of the in one of the stories and I suddenly thought I thought oh yeah diet steakette it was there every time you landed on a space station in frontier there was this advert for diet steakette I, I wish I'd thought to write that into a story uh, but someone else got there oh it's in uh, it's in Pinacoteca the guy eats uh, pre-packed diet steakette bars uh, and I just Apple. so it's things like that I quite like um yeah, I just quite like little references and I like to sort of notice things that other people don't. And so when someone else has noticed something that I've missed, I thought, oh, I missed opportunity. But. I'll, I'll go for one, um, if I may, which is actually not uh, one of the official um, uh, fictions from here. Um, there's, a, there's a piece in Chris Jarvis's excellent Escape Velocity. And if you haven't downloaded the free um, Escape Velocity animated series, then uh, not animated series, animated uh, no, not audio animated. Drama. Oh, you know what I mean. Audio. Um, drama. Audio. That's what I mean. Um, <laughs> um, there's there's a moment in that um, where the 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 young girl first sees space through the cockpit of a ship, and I listened to that and got goosebumps. And just my advice, just go and listen to that because it nails that whole. I'm back in the cockpit of an elite spacecraft again. And it was, it, was, it was magic, really, really good. Well done, Chris. Episode two, season one. There we go. Episode two, season one, was that Alan? Yeah. Right, you are. <laughs> okay, uh, another question. Yes. Hello. Um, Kate, you, rec you mentioned the fact that Slough was a, a big kind of like uh, a eureka moment for you to, in where, where, you set, where you set your location I was just wondering whether the other authors had that kind of eureka moment where they experienced something and they thought damn that would be good in the year 3200 yep <laughs> um, Michael actually very early on when, uh, when they agreed to let me work on the guide material they sent me a very, very early prototype of the map in terms of the political layout of the different factions in Elite Dangerous. And this was a two-dimensional map that had color coding of which systems were going to be Alliance, which systems were going to be Federation, and which systems are going to be Empire. And I noticed that the Alliance color had spread around Lave. And then Dave Hughes's RPG came out and I went, I, I, I don't have a project, I need, I need a dance partner, I need a project. And so I was thinking about what I could do and then I just thought, but the planet that we all started on doesn't have a story. And that was the Eureka moment. So in terms of it being a location of a place to, to write something. Um, yeah, absolutely, then bang, you know, um, and everything else fell into place uh, in terms of thinking about research that I'd done before. Um, in relation to, um, to you know, to real world events, looking at um, perhaps at Chile and the disappeared, uh, which is a particular period in Chile in the 1970s, and Augusto Pinochet and other bits and pieces to do with that. I could go on and on about very boring, you know, political research than I did for this. That's excellent, Alan. Thank you very Thank much. You. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had a really uh, very important moment for me with the the comets trail. Um, I was planning the story about a bounty hunter that wants to be elite. It was, for me, it was kind of like, this is a quintessential elite story, trying to be really focused on a single pilot, trying to be elite. Um, one of our backers backed to name a character, and I had already set aside some characters. I thought, these other characters um, will be perfectly fine. I can swap in names for them. 
but my main character, I had set. Uh, I thought this is my character. You know, she's she's like this X Y Z. Uh, I'm not changing anything about her. I've got her story set. But one of the backers, um, uh, his daughter has cerebral palsy, and he wanted uh, he would like a character named after his daughter. And when I heard this, it suddenly it, it tweaked something in me because it, it made me made me really think. Hang on, my hero could have this, and and heroines, you might say. Um, and it worked in a lot of interesting ways with the story about the motivations and such. And also really, for me, it had that kind of eureka moment of, um, I mean, really think about when you're in Elite or, or Frontier or any of these games and you're flying and you're fighting against someone, you're fighting against a ship and you don't see who's in that ship. All you see is the skill and the tenacity and all the amazing things that person does in that ship. You don't know who's inside that and, and what challenges they face and what disabilities they might have or, or other things. And I, I thought, what a wonderful idea of having someone who is utterly amazing in a ship, who's an extremely skilled and motivated and strong individual, but who, who has this sort of this weakness or something that she feels is holding her back. And yeah, so that turning point of, of deciding to change my whole main character and change the whole story, just you know, swiveling the whole story around this to, to bring in the cerebral palsy and how she feels about it, how, you know, how that affects her emotionally and so on. That was a really big thing for me. Okay, uh, Kate, would you like to uh, ask the original question about Slough, perhaps? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's in my author's note. By the way, that story, every time you tell it, gives me goosebumps, so that's, yeah. That, um, yeah, so Slough, my planet, it was one of the only things that I had sort of like in my mind when I started that I wanted to set it on the planet of Slough, and Slough is... It's depressing. It's got a really heavy atmosphere. It's, it's one and a half G, so it's kind of, you know, it's heavy physically as well. And the surface is very acidic. The atmosphere is very acidic. I, when I was doing, in my previous life, um, I was doing sales, and I had an afternoon to kill in Slough. It was a rainy Tuesday afternoon, and so I thought, oh, I'll have a look around the shopping centre. So I'm wandering around the shopping centre in Slough, and um, I was approached by a man who asked me if I wanted to review a book. Have a cup of tea, come in, sit, get out of the rain, have a cup of tea, review our book. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I've got a couple of hours to spare, why not? What the hell? It turns out he was from the Church of Scientology and he was trying to recruit me. And the thing that the church, I don't know if any, is, is there any Scientologists here today? Okay. Um, the thing about the Church of Scientology is they try to recruit you by making you realize how crap your life is and then they offer you a better option. And, um, and so this guy's like, Are you, is your life really crap? I'm like, no, actually, it's pretty good. <laughs> Only good money, got a company car, I'm here shopping in Slough on a Tuesday afternoon, not so good, but you know, I can leave, <laughs> you have to stay. And um, at the end of it, it, it made me realize two things. One, one is that I have a pretty awesome life, and two is that I never wanted to return to Slough. So that's kind of what I want to encapsulate in my, um, in my planet selection. So that was my eureka moment. I actually, um, I had an anti-Eureka moment, if such a thing. What's the opposite of Eureka? I don't think there is one. Arse. Arse. Just a bad, yeah, anyway. Um, I, I um, had, rather like some of the other guys, I'd um, I looked at the frontier map and gone, hmm, there's the empire and there's the federation. And all I knew I wanted for my book was a system that was kind of between the two, so it could be a disputed zone, which could be, you know, 
bias to the empire or the federation. And I'd kind of gone, plotted it and found one, and there was a nice nebula next to it, so I thought, well, that looked pretty on the cover of the book when we get there. And the system was the Wolf 630 system. And so I wrote the synopsis about it, and I looked at the history of what was in there in the Frontier game, and I extrapolated from it and said there'd be some kind of dramatic overtake of the system, and I wrote this all out. And I was getting emails, and I'm glad he's not here now because he'll be in trouble. Um, I was getting emails from Michael all the way through this saying, yep, that's fine, yep, that's fine, yep, that's fine, yep, that's fine. And I got quite well developed, almost down to the final synopsis, when I got an email back saying, oh, sorry, David Braben has overwritten this, and you can't use it anymore. <laughs> Great. So there's, I've suddenly got the whole developed plot, I now don't have a star system to set it in. Um, at which point I kind of went, uh, and the, the, the fundamentals of Wolf 630, if you look at it on the Frontier map, is it is a multiple um, star system. There are four stars in that system, and there's effectively a single planet with a, with a single space station in the original game. And I sort of went, okay, I need one of those um, somewhere else, and so I invested a bit of time, actually did some um, astronomical research and built a star system from scratch. Um, working out some different stars, put them all together, put some planets in it. And um, I, think, I think Michael might have felt a little bit guilty on my behalf. Because <coughs> what, what, he's, what he's arranged to do for me is that the solar system that I built for my purposes of research, which is the prism system, as you'll find in the game, um, he's taken all of my maths and all of my calculations that I did, and he's put them into whatever it is that's inside Elite Dangerous. I think it's called the Stellar Forge. Stellar Forge. Um, Stellar Forge. Yeah, Stellar Forge. That's an impressive it's, sounding it sounds piece great. of software. He, yeah. he apparently, he, he promised me, I'll put that in and I will make it as near as I can to what you've done in the actual game. So I kind of thought, thank you very much, Michael. So I, I felt better. But it was my anti-Eureka moment in that sense because I lost my star system halfway through. My story is um, set in space, deep space, and it's about a guy trapped on, a, on his spaceship for five years. Originally, he was going to be trapped just in his escape pod. Um, I've already written half the story, and I'm still asking Michael, how big are the escape pods? I need to know what he could do in these, you know, what area he's got, Where's the to is there a toilet at the escape pod, things like that. In the end, he sends me an email saying, actually, we might just have it as, a, as an escape, like um, an ejector seat, really. So it'll just be a pod that goes around the, the chair. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> So my character's got to be five years in a chair. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I didn't know what to do. And then I think, Darren, you, you, told, you said, how about just he gets stuck on his ship? And I thought, actually, that's, that was a eureka moment. Because when, when it was in the whole ship that he was um, stuck in, it meant I could do a lot more with him than, yeah, just sit in a chair and just <laughs> count the time. You know? <laughs> it was good. Chair up, chair down. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. Right, guys, can we? Uh, are we going to go for one more question? Uh, and there it is. You know what, Flavio, we might, we might squeeze two in just for you. Incidentally, we will be here for most of the afternoon, so yeah. if you want to steal it, just yeah. natter at us, natter at us, please. We'll talk it's here. a question for the collective, really. Uh, you've spoken about how the elite universe has fed into your fiction. Are you willing and able to give any insights into how your fiction might feed back into the game? No. Yeah, Alan's probably the best person to ask on that one. Yes. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so um, I'm not going to spoil Labor Revolution for anybody, and I'm not going to spoil any of the other books for anybody. So I'll uh, I'll put that caveat out the way, and then Dan can shut me up if I I start spoiling anything. No, okay. Right. Um, we do have a mandate that we've been given that uh, locations have been included in the game already. So if anybody is uh, looking up in the Stellar Forge and looking up in the Orrery and want to go and sort of look for a planet, then they will find that the descriptions are descriptions we've written. Okay. Um, I know there's a small issue, isn't there, at the moment, with the way around a planet is... Yeah, there's a couple of names that yeah, are just yeah. the wrong way around. Yeah, right? which... which it's that, beta, right? Yeah, that's, it's beta, so that's being worked on. But the majority, there is just one story where there is a small issue, where there's, there's two names the wrong way around. But anyway, we're, 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 we're sorting that. Um, so if you look up the prism system, Drew will have written the description for it. Uh, if you look up the lave system, I wrote the description for it. Um, from that... There are then outcomes in relation to the plot. Um, we're obviously, we're, we're pretty much all mad keen for sequels if the opportunity arises, so we'd, we'd like to explore this further. But um, in certain ways, we've all written small tie-ins that can be used as mission uh, elements. So it, I think it is worthwhile to explore the systems that are part of the stories, to read the stories, know the information because the information will help you connect up what some of the missions are for for example and i think um you know anything that talks about lavian tree grubs uh we've already discussed this um, uh, alan sorry to interrupt uh, am i right in thinking that that's now referred to officially as grubgate yeah 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 it is and it not to do with you uh, uh dan so you weren't uh, you weren't to blame um, we have found out a bit more about that today, actually. It was quite interesting to note who it was to do with. Um, uh, Alan, do you want to just go through the, the just, just, just the, out, the outline of that for those who Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, the Lavian tree grub is extinct. Okay. Uh, there was a moment where I had my novel completely approved. Everything had gone through, sailed through. Everything was great. And then Frontier released a small piece of guide material that we'd been expecting for about three, four months, where they had added two paragraphs that talked about people going out and having a barbecue of Lavian tree grub steaks. I was furious. This is my whole plot. Here is where you have approved it like this. Here is where you... And I quoted back all of the statements. They have now subsequently agreed that the Lavian tree grub is extinct. So just for your knowledge, the Lavian tree grub is extinct. Um, so yeah, so but you will find that there are elements of each of the plots that you can find as missions as stubs, and uh, you will be able to so extinct. Extinct, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Monster. Entirely my fault. Um, so yeah, you will be able to then find, uh, as I say, the, the, the plot elements once you get to the end of the books, and you know, and I think it's important to get to the end of the books first before I spoil anything. Um, you will find that there are certain spin-offs that will tie in. Some of the characters will uh, will be there. Um, the Phoenix Brigade is a, a you know is a, a living entity in uh, uh, in Labor Revolution, and uh, my my plan for the Phoenix Brigade is that it will be something that players will join, and also it will be something that features in the game uh, as well. And I'm sure all of the authors have have certain elements that they will want to to have as sort of stubs of of little quests and things that uh, that people can get involved in. So. That's the long answer of the short answer, which was yes. So, yeah. 
And I just want to add, um, if you want to fly to Slough, you'll find me under Angel Rose's uh, name flying around Slough, swearing and being very rude to everybody. So that's a little bit of role-playing that will happen in the game. I think um, uh, Lave Radio also runs a, uh, a radioactive waste dumping business. In no, the no, <laughs> no, is that no, not true? no radio. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to know more about that, ask this over a beer. Uh, there is a small ongoing conflict in relation to dumping waste. It was quite interesting to see that the first Alpha mission was about collecting up waste canisters in an orange sidewinder. I was very, very entertained because uh, we had featured that in the development and just laughed about it. Um, the 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 one additional thing I would say to to Kate is is also um, I'm I'm also flying around as a character. I'm not going to tell you which one. Uh, so if you have read the book and you suddenly see someone flying towards you as one of those characters, then um, yeah, that probably will be me. Because I don't think anyone else right? would do. It. <laughs> okay, happy days. So uh, we just have a last question for you guys. If you can handle the heat for a moment, um, this is from Flavio Antonetti. Here we are, Commander. Hello there. Right. Uh, since we've had Michael just approve the fact that uh, we're going to have sequels next year, <laughs> who is uh, willing to write a sequel? I like the way you extrapolated approved from that uh, <laughs> we'll look at it next year comment. Very I think, clever. You know, actually, I wanted, I wanted to ask a question as well of the, of the anthology authors, because I think all of us who've written the full-length novels wouldn't, wouldn't even blink at, at, at the opportunity. Um, but ha, would you write, a, would you anthology writers write a full-length novel if you were given the opportunity for a, a licence again? If I had five or ten years to write it, then yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have been talking to Michael about doing a, a, a future mission, so not a sequel, a story, but a, a mission would suit, a sequel mission would suit my story. So I've been talking to Michael about that, but yeah. Yeah, I would give it a go. Um, I'd probably try and write a continuation from the story that I've already written because it kind of, it's kind of open to having one of the characters doesn't know much about what's gone on. I'll say no more than that, but it'd be interesting to, to write a story to find out more about what's gone on. Indeed. I'd, from I'd their point of view, which, which they don't understand anything. They're outside of it all and, and, and they're indeed. left. And, no, I, I, I must admit that uh, Chris Booker's story, Crossing the Line, um, is uh, one, of, one of the few audiobooks that we actually have all shiny and finished. Now, I'm just going to look towards Chris Jarvis and see if he's glaring at me. No, it's fine. No, we're good to go. So, later this evening, we will be playing you the entire story, Crossing the Line, completely finished. How's that? So, um, how long is it, Chris? How long is it coming in? It's three and a half, four hours, is it? Something? No, no. <laughs> Did you hear the clapping stop? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's like an hour and a quarter or something. Yeah, yeah, it's quite long, yeah, but... Yeah. No, it's all. It's going to be playing up here. It's, it's um, and obviously you guys can mooch around. It's going to be over the PA anyway. So um, enjoy. It's the very first ever fantastic elite fiction FBA created by the Radio Theatre Workshop by that Jedi, Jedi here. Uh, full audio, augmented audio. I suppose augmented audio would, would do it, wouldn't it? You know, because it's not an audio book and it's yeah. It's not a, although, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, crossing the line is quite an interesting beast. I mean, for those of you that were at LaveCon. Uh, slight apologies because of course it's the only story that you've already heard from the anthology because um, at LaveCon we did a we did a live audio drama demonstration um, one of the things about Crossing the Line is it's, it's a very dialogue heavy story um, so actually what you'll find when you when you listen to the the, the, the produced audio book um, it does sound very dramatic and uh, Toby Longworth who did the, the narration for us um, is something of a kind of genius when it comes to 
just making himself sound like different people. So do bear in mind when you listen to it that it is one guy doing all the voices because um, I think that will, that will blow your mind ever so slightly. Um, but sorry, to go back to answer the question, I think in terms of... Uh, I think if there were more licenses available, I think one of the things I'd like to do is to have a... It would be nice to do an official audio series. Um, and I think... I couldn't obviously... You know, I don't... Unlike Alan, who's already started his sequel, I don't tend to work on things until I've sort of got a green light for them. Um, but I think one of the things that occurred to me when I, was, when I was writing my short story is that I wanted to make my characters in the short story interesting enough that they could potentially be the cast of a new, of a new series. So I would really like to do, do sort of a continuation of what happens to those guys. But I think for me, I think, you know, rather than it being necessarily a full-length book, I, I would probably use that license to actually produce something episodic. Um, that's just me. That's, that's what, I, what I love. <laughs> yeah, okay, so so you've now stolen my thunder, but most of the people already know, I guess, because they might have been at, at, um, at LaveCon. Um, yes, I've already started Elite Lave Republic. Um, I've done 6,000 words because I was the person who was running to catch up with everybody else in the previous round of writing, so I thought, <laughs> damn you, I'm going to be ahead. So I've already started writing it. Um, planned. It is planned for three books. Um, so we, we kind of already know that, you know, that that will be the way in which it will go. Um, with regards to um, just mentioning uh, Chris's stuff, I think we would all utterly, utterly love for there to be a proper audio drama associated with, uh, with Elite. And the other thing, before Darren tries to say anything or anything else, Darren should be writing a novel. People already know I have said this. Darren should write a novel. Um, I think... You know, there comes a time when, whenever anybody feels that they've got the, the, you know, the confidence to be able to do it, and also the narrative stamina to be able to do it. And Darren is at that stage, and he should now look to write a novel, whether it's Elite or whether it's something else. But you know, Elite is something he loves, so um, he should write a novel. So, so just when you see him in the bar later or anything else, just remind him that he should write a novel. That would be good. From um, from my perspective, um, if you look at the um, epilogue. In my book, um, you'll notice there's a bit of a, uh, a uh, effectively a cliffhanger for a potential future sequel. Um, I have submitted the synopsis uh, of said sequel to a certain publisher not too far away from me. Oh, should I use this one instead? That works better. Um, and um, uh, can confirm that uh, Mr. Dan Grubb is in receipt of something called Elite Revelation. <laughs> um, and what does the synopsis come in at, Drew? It's about 35, 40,000 words, right? <laughs> I don't know, I think it was 6,001. <laughs> awesome. Okay, guys, I think that's a perfect time to uh, end the Q&A, so thank you very much for your participation. Uh, these guys, as soon as I get them a couple of fans, because it's like an oven up here, um, uh, will be, we'll be here for the next 30 or 40 minutes, so if you guys want to approach them with your books and go and have a chat and ask them questions and all the other things that you didn't get to ask them, that would be wonderful. wonderful. But for, for now, please, let's have it. Uh, let's take the roof off for the FEF authors. Hooray! Thank you very much, guys. Hello, Dan and Gabby. This is Steph here, or Zena as you otherwise know her. On behalf of everybody who attended in Hull, thank you ever, ever so much. Goodbye. So, hello, and welcome to a very special edition of Lave Radio. We're here at uh, Fantasticon, 
We've had a very exciting day of lots of different things. And we're kind of now sitting down at almost the end of the day to share some of our thoughts, maybe. Alan, how has your day been? Really, really busy, really, really tiring. Uh, I'm, I'm on a bit of a tour at the moment, and uh, Fantasticon is one of the last stops on that, that little tour. I've, I've had quite a few days of going to different conventions and uh, different gatherings of people in uh, uh, the science fiction fantasy industry mostly to do with books and other bits and pieces but um yeah it's it's been fascinating uh, and coming up here is is obviously to to meet the elite fans and uh the other excellent writers that we have up here in uh, in hull you know is is kind of a, a another part to that whole tour and and really nice to to sort of meet them be appreciated and to finally see those books yeah. i mean goodness yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. really <laughs> the icing on the cake isn't it we've seen the hardbacks and the paperbacks of the official elite fiction i know because we've sort of had the ebook release for the backers and stuff but it almost feels a bit more now like the the books are actually out if you know what i mean absolutely and it's also very nice that my pile's the smallest by the time i got here <laughs> that is excellent so um what other stuff have you seen today anything particularly stood out at you yeah, there were a few things. Uh, we had some readings from some of the Hull, other Hull writers, uh, particularly Linda Caster's reading was fantastic. And, I mean, she has quite a track record in that she's written for Interzone before. Um, and she has a very, very, very good descriptive style, good, uh, you know, gets the meat of the action in terms of, uh, of her writing, which was lovely. Uh, it was nice to meet her too. And um, certainly if you're a fantasy fan, I think that um, some of her work would be something that people might be interested in. Uh, other things that stood out, nice to see a gaming room again, nice to see the build of the game, nice to sit down and talk with Michael Brooks a little bit more and share a few war stories about uh, some of the development. But lovely to get to the bar and have somebody come up and say, yeah, after the Q&A, your talk really inspired me, I'm going to start writing again. You know, that, that, that kind of thing means that the whole three-hour drive is, is kind of worthwhile, really. <laughs> I've seen a few things today. I've managed to sit down and have another game of uh, Dave Hughes's um, tabletop RPG Elite Encounters. And I think compared to the sort of one o'clock in the morning, very tired, slightly drunken session that I had at LaveCon, I think this one was a bit more of an actual kind of insight into how the game works. And yeah, and it's nice to see. And I think you know, Dave is obviously feeling more confident with it. I noticed there was, there was much less sort of furious scribbling of notes this time as he noted down things that were he sort of spotted that were missing and yeah that was really good I've tried the um, the, the, D, the Oculus Rift DK2 today and that was really interesting I have to say I think the it's definitely fair to say that the head tracking the, the smoothness of it has come on in leaps and bounds I mean it is a very different experience wearing it it feels much less like you're kind of controlling a camera with your head and much more like you're actually in a room and I think the ability to actually kind of stand up in your chair and kind of look all around you and look down is a, is a weirdly out-of-body experience. I mean, the, the point where I actually took the Rift headset off and was back in the room was actually almost slightly disorienting. I would say, though, I mean, it's, it's obviously still in development. I think people are hoping that the, the development kit 2 will solve all of the, the kind of resolution issues... I think we'll be slightly disappointed. Uh, certainly, at least for Elite Dangerous, a lot of the text is still very hard to read. Not as in, not as illegible as uh, the, the previous version, but it's still not. It's still not quite that. Well, certainly with DK One, you know, you've got the sense that um, whilst Elite Dangerous was compatible with the Oculus Rift, it wasn't op optimized for the Oculus Rift. Particularly when you look at uh, other demonstrated, you know, environments. Most of the environments being written in Unity do very much, you know 
appear much more pixel perfect. Um, so I think there's a little bit on the part of the developers to, to work on that uh, as well. But I've not tried DK2 yet. I'm hoping that by the end of the night I might do. I've also I've not tried Dave Hughes's game, even though just before we came over here, he has just tried to ambush me to play <laughs> the game um, with the fact that um, I'm planning to help him with some of the editing. Uh, I'd actually, you know, I'd, I kind of want to leave it for a little bit longer. And also, I've got a three-hour drive home, so uh, getting started and then ending up uh, playing on late into the night, I think, is probably... <laughs> not necessarily the thing that I'll be doing this weekend but you know keen to try it and certainly everybody that's come out has, has said that uh, the role playing game is really good and I've also this week I've been uh, taking his flyers around to some of the conventions that I've been to and speaking to a few potential publishers for him so you know good luck Dave I'm hoping that uh, we will find someone who is interested in publishing the RPG specifically for, uh, for Elite Excellent We've also had a bunch of other people here at um, Fantastic on this weekend. It's not been entirely elite-focused. We've had a little corner of some retro games consoles. There's been some uh, some classic Time Crisis on the PlayStation. There's been some... We've had some stalls selling some... Uh, well, there's, there's some second-hand science fiction. I picked up a Vonnegut, which is great. Oh, nice. Know, for, for £3. So, yeah, no, we've had... We've had second-hand books we've yeah. uh there's classic good, star wars figures there's lots of kind of toys and memorabilia and yep good selection of cosplay too in that um one of the things that let me know i was in the right place when i got to the train station was that iron man was at the train station <laughs> so that was that was very useful and that that kit was really really good yeah absolutely so actually i mean we, we're very aware that um this weekend that we're up here in hull we are at a small convention and down in london at you know the xl arena there is Longcon, and Longcon is for 9,000 plus people, you know, and it is the biggest, it's the world convention of science fiction and fantasy. You know, there is a massive, massive crowd there. We're very aware that that's going on. At the same time, what's lovely about being here is that this really does offer an opportunity for people from Hull, people from uh, the surrounding area to kind of get together and really celebrate the the culture that um, that that is coming alive or burgeoning together. You know, you you feel there's there's a lot of creativity here. Certainly after the talks that we've we've had, there's a lot of creativity in the room for different things. Maybe for audio, maybe for anime, maybe for uh, for film, maybe for writing. But it's nice to be in a, a space where we are seeing a cross-section of different genres and different story ideas sort of coming together and seeing people inspired because you want that you know yeah. you want that and that that actually makes you know makes driving worthwhile makes makes the uh, the sitting down and, and chatting to people worthwhile makes the you know the queuing or anything else worthwhile if people are keen and creative and imaginative you want to encourage it in terms of some of these other creative projects we've had uh, a presentation on a, a new project called vampire wars uh, a sort of heavily anime slash manga inspired trading card battling game that is also accompanied with a kind of written story and music and and a video game as well an actual sort of video game version of the trading card game with kind of plot elements thrown in and I think that's you know it's a, it's a hugely ambitious project but I think there's an awful lot of there's an awful lot of passion being thrown into it I feel a little bit bad I can't actually off the top of my head say what the website is probably if you search for Vampire Wars manga it'll probably come up from the presentation you certainly got the sense that there is a great deal of passion for these creative projects and actually having been down in the commercial world for the last week uh, amongst publishers editors and writers 
the disconnect, and I was just saying this to somebody else a, a minute ago, the disconnect is very much about how people are passionate and creative about things and they get very involved and immersed and they their, their ideas get bigger and bigger and you know and more expansive and then they don't have enough time in the day to, to do the things they want to do and it kind of starts to you know fall beside the wayside for a job or anything else and the people in the commercial world who want these creative people what they're looking for is they are looking for a very focused idea and they're looking for something that they can market that is absolutely focused towards you know towards an audience and certainly the passion strikes you the creativity strikes you if just occasionally um, the people that want to produce these things can just narrow their focus enough into one project first and then use that to then sell the next one and the next one then that's the way you know that's the way in which you get noticed that's the way in which you get exposure and that's the way in which you get you get picked up uh, we've also had today a kind of i suppose it's been a ground bit of groundbreaking for me because we've had the first sort of public play i say one of the audiobooks i mean one of the short stories uh, has essentially been played over the pa system in full um and it was nice to see you know there were some people in the room sort of sort of sitting and listening to it despite how hard it was to actually sit and listen to it sort of in that environment um what is it with you every time that your work is put out there is always a little bit of a put down <laughs> in your work it was great and it was really nice in that with the fact that you've got toby longworth is your your voice actor yeah. this crossing the line by by chris booker was the you know the story that we we showcased and the the really nice thing about it is there are quite a lot of character parts and it. it's quite dialogue driven and toby played all those parts um, because it's an audio book, it's not an audio drama, you know, it is an audio book enhanced because there's a lot of music and, you know, emotional cueing and so on. But the fact that Toby played all those parts and you hear all these different voices that he brings to an audio drama, it's fantastic. Yeah. And the opening, just the gravitas of his voice gives you that real Richard Burton feel to, <laughs> to what was there. So it was, yeah, it was beautiful, it was really good. Okay, so we've also got uh, with us uh, Mike, who's a very good friend of mine. Um, hey. And I think it's just interesting to get a bit of Mike's perspective because this is the sort of first of these events that you've really been to? Yeah, absolutely. I've never been to one before, um, but I'm sure this won't be the last. <laughs> a slightly ominous face there. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I've really enjoyed it, actually. Um, I don't know if this is representative of this kind of thing, um, but I've certainly, one of the things that has surprised me is how friendly everybody is. Do you mean elite events or do you mean science fiction conventions? I suppose science fiction conventions more broadly, but particularly uh, with a focus on a particular thing, like this one is focused particularly on elite, um, because of course I am Johnny Nobody, um, and it's, <laughs> it's quite nice that people nonetheless are quite friendly and, and happy to chat to me and explain things to me. Um, I mean, apart from, I think, a sort of five-minute bash on the Elite Beta at your house a few months ago. Um, I'd not even played any of the game. So I had a bit of a bash on, on the Oculus Rift today and had to kind of not only get to grips with that, but actually how you just play Elite. Yeah, yeah. Um, and people were very patient and, and very friendly, so it was very nice. And how, and how was that experience? It, it was, it was mind-blowing, actually. I think it's one of those things that you can... There are very few moments in gaming history where you can do something and you can think this is definitely the future that I'm, I'm experiencing now. And I think with Oculus Rift, that was absolutely what I was thinking. 
I thought this is the kind of thing that in maybe five years' time or less, uh, this will be a standard way of doing things, and it's absolutely mind-blowing. Um, we're getting ever closer to my dream, which is kind of Star Trek holodecks in my lifetime, um, and Oculus Rift is the closest I've seen of that. So that's that's very positive indeed. Uh, so thank you very much. We've got uh, we're going to be moving on to the. Uh, I think we've got some fantastic awards being presented, and possibly some sort of raffle. Um, whether or not that raffle will be as epically unending as the raffle at LaveCon, we do not know. Yeah, and uh, we might be doing some more podcast recording later, uh, possibly in the wee small hours. We'll see how that goes. If there's music after this bit, thank you for listening, and we didn't record any more podcast. Cheers. <laughs> Two seconds, I'll be right back.